We have been preaching through the Apostles' Creed. Normally, uh, we preach what we would call expositionally, book by book, verse by verse, making our way through Old and New Testament. However, uh, we have taken a break and we have decided to uh, unpack the Apostles' Creed. Today, we are going to finish the Apostles' Creed. We're on the last sermon just in this series. And to remind you, the Creed was written early in church history. And it was written as a means of summarizing the gospel and as a means of teaching the essential truths of the gospel to new believers. It answers the question, what do we believe? And is is that not an essential question that we must be able to answer today? Just think about that. Do you know what you believe? What What we believe determines how we live. It affects our joy, our finances, our parenting, our marriages. It affects how we work, how we socialize with others. It affects how we go through suffering. It affects how we think through things like politics, like Black Lives Matter, like sexual identity, and so many other things. The Apostles' Creed serves as a declaration of our belief. And I know there's been a couple difficult words, and some of you have have questioned, what about when it says Catholic, and Ben preached on that? Two, two weeks ago, right? Two weeks ago? Uh, so you can actually go back to that one where he unpacks what Catholic means as the universal body when we're talking about the body of Christ. But this doctrine, this creed, or this creed serves as not only teaching us, but reminding us of the things that are of first importance. It declares our belief in a triune God. If you notice, as we go through the creed, it talks about our belief in the Father, in the Son, in the Spirit, and the Spirit. It talks about that Jesus came and died for our sins, rose again, where he now sits at the right hand of God. He's bringing all things under his rule, and we are waiting for his return. It declares that because of our faith in Jesus, not only are we forgiven, but we've been joined to the Catholic Church, meaning the body of Christ, the universal church. Today we close, and we're talking about the resurrection of the body, and we're talking about life everlasting. So the creed begins, and it says, we believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. So the one who made everything, and it ends by saying, we will one day rise again and live with this Father and in in, in this triune God and in new heavens and new earth for all of eternity. And what we're going to see today is that what we know, what we understand about the resurrection matters greatly. But I just ask you, do you know about the resurrection? Do you, do you know details from God's word about the resurrection that we will experience when Christ returns? A deficient understanding of the resurrection robs us actually of our joy and our confidence in christ the truth of the resurrection is to be like a rock that is underneath us supporting us um, holding us making sure we do not sink or waver and so today we're going to be in first corinthians 15 it is 58 verses long and we stand when we read god's word we will not read all 58 verses but it is the longest treatment of God's word on the resurrection. So I'll go ahead and invite you as we stand and we read. The word raised is used 19 times in this chapter. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at verses 12 through uh, 12 through 29 or 12 through 28. 
Actually, I think it's just 12 through 19 is the part that we're going to read. Uh, We're going to address the entire chapter, but we're only going to read part of it. Uh, One of the reasons we stand is because we do believe God's Word comes inspired by the Spirit, full of authority, and, and it's inerrant and infallible in every way. So we do so as a means of honoring our God and Father. <clears throat> Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who, are, who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Let me pray. Father, Father, as we come into your word this morning and we look at what you teach us about the resurrection, God, I pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts. I pray that we would see, that we would understand, and that we would rejoice in this truth. I pray that we would see that the fact that your Son has risen guarantees that we also, who have believed in you, will rise one day also. God, we thank you for this truth. We thank you that we know that the grave is not the end, but that, God, we will be raised in glory to live with you for all of eternity. Your Son came not just simply to improve our lives, but to give us new lives and a new kingdom and a new world where we will spend eternity rejoicing in your presence. God, help us to understand the truth today. May it spur us on in our love for you, in our love for others, our love for missions, God, we praise you this morning. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So I've kind of broken up the, the sermon into, into several questions, and what we're going to do is just make our way through these questions, which are going to take us through sections of this passage. Now, we're going to go in every part in 1 Corinthians 15, but it's 58 verses long. There's parts like... Uh, Verse 29, which talks about the being baptized on the dead. I, I did, I, we're just not going to be able to get to everything in here. There's lots of fun things, but we're not going to be able to dig into all 58 verses. Uh, so this is going to be largely a survey of the chapter, but we will grasp the main point of what Paul is saying. So the first question we have is, how do we know that there is an actual bodily resurrection that we will experience? And, and that's really the question that we enter in. Verse 12 tells us the Corinthians had their doubts. It says, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say? So he's saying, how can some of you, the church, say there's no resurrection? So there's a thought within the Corinthian church that I don't think we actually rise from the grave. I don't think that's going to happen. They're not so much doubting that Jesus rose but they're doubting that they will rise. And so in verses 1 through 11, 
Paul has walked through the gospel. In fact, we preached verses 1 through 11 for Easter this year. And Paul mentions that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, he was raised. And then he uses the word appeared four times in verses 1 through 11 to emphasize that not just the disciples, but that over 500 people saw that Jesus had risen from the grave. So Paul's point in these verses is that the resurrection of Jesus is a historical, public, and verifiable fact because he goes, most of these 500 people are still alive. So you can go ask them and they will tell you how they saw Christ and how he rose. So now in verses 12 through 19, Paul wants us to know the implications, what the implications are if Jesus did or if Jesus did not rise from the grave. So he's going to say, all right, let's say he didn't rise. What does that mean? And so as we walk just through these verses, what I want you to notice is that everything about the Christian life is tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus doesn't rise from the grave, if that's not true, then everything about the Christian faith goes down to the drain. Nothing we do matters. Verse 13, if there's no resurrection, notice what Paul says. If we don't rise, then Christ didn't rise. So when they're questioning and saying, we don't think we're going to rise, they're actually, the implication is, Jesus didn't rise. And so if Jesus is still decaying in the grave, Paul wants us to know, then we have no hope either. So here's the point. What happens to Jesus will happen to us. If he rose from the grave, then we who believe in him will also rise. Jesus is the guarantee of our resurrection. Verse 14, Paul says, our preaching is useless. He says it is vain, meaning it is empty, it is of no value. And if, uh, Verse 14 and 17, he will then say, our faith is also useless. So not only is the preaching useless, we're declaring that Jesus rose from the grave, but that didn't happen. And so if you believe in this guy who didn't actually raise from the grave, then that's useless also. Verse 15, he says, we're actually misrepresenting God. We're saying that Jesus is his son, and that Jesus died on the cross, and that God the Father rose him from the grave. But if that didn't happen, then we've actually been blaspheming about who God is and what he has done. Verse 17, the effect would be, if Jesus did not rise, then we are still in our sins. Which means we're still under the wrath of God. Which means we have no hope. Verse 18, it means that all who have died, and he uses the words fallen asleep. When we're in the New Testament, when Paul uses the word fallen asleep, that is the, um, that is the way he refers to believers in Christ who have died. And he says, look, if those who have fallen asleep before us, uh, if Christ has not risen, then they have perished. Meaning, they have been laid waste. They're totally destroyed. There is no hope from them. They will not come back to a new resurrected life in the presence of God. Verse 19, he says, we are to be pitied. We centered our life on a dead Savior. That is pathetic, he is saying. If Jesus did not rise, we modeled our lives not after a good teacher, but a liar and a lunatic. 
At least that's how C.S. Lewis would describe if Jesus is not truly who he is. He wasn't a good teacher. He was leading people away from God, calling himself the Son of God, saying, if you believe in me, you will have forgiveness of sins. If that's not true, he's not good. He's a liar, and he's a lunatic. So what Paul is saying here, he's not wanting us to miss miss this. If Jesus did not rise, then nothing about Christianity is true. And there is no good news. So if we deny the resurrection of our bodily resurrection, we're denying the resurrection of Christ, and thus there is no hope. But he has laid the foundation in verses 1-11 through that Christ has risen. And because Christ has risen, his point then is, we too will rise. And so the next question is, how do we know if we will experience the bodily resurrection? How do we know that we will participate in this? And that's really in verses 20 through 28, Paul unpacks a lot of that. In those verses, Paul is going to contrast two figures, Adam and Jesus. And we're going to look at these two figures. And these two figures represent two humanities. We'll first look at Adam, and then we'll look at Christ. In verse 21, if you read, it says that by a man, by Adam, came death. And in verse 22, we read, for as in Adam, all die. So what he's saying is, when Adam sinned, death came into the world, and because we all come from Adam, we also are all sinful, and thus we also are all subject to death. What happens to Adam happens to everyone who is in Adam. Adam represents all of humanity. Paul also speaks like this in Romans 5. He'll say, just as sin came into the world through one man, through Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men and all have sinned. So the Bible teaches that Adam is the first man. He represents all of humanity. Because Adam sinned, death came into the world. Because we're in Adam, we are born sinful, and thus we also are under the condemnation of death. Adam is a representative figure of all of humanity. What happens to him happens to us. So if Adam is under the curse of sin, we are too. So if we're going to have any hope, we need to figure out how do we get out of Adam. we got to get away from Adam, and we need some other representative. We need a better representative. And that's the whole point of what Paul is going to be writing about This is what happens in Adam, but this is why Christ came. In verses 21 through 22, listen to what he says. By a man has also come, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. This is Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So because Adam sinned, death comes in the world, but now Jesus brings life. Jesus at the cross pays the penalty of our sin. He dies, the ra- he dies the death we should have died. He suffers the wrath that we should have suffered. And here's the good news. He doesn't stay dead. But he rises from the grave. He conquers sin. He conquers death. This is the gospel. This is Paul's point. This is why we have hope. This is why our preaching is not in vain. This is why our faith is not in vain. Jesus did not stay dead. We go back to verses 1 through 11. We're Paul uh, proclaims, over 500 people have seen Christ. It's a historical, public, verifiable fact. At least it was in the first century in the sense of verifiable that you could go and actually talk to people who had seen him. 
Christ did not stay dead, but he rose from the grave. And so thus, when we believe in Jesus, we are taken from Adam and we are united to Christ. Jesus becomes our new representative. And so if when we're in Adam, everything that happens to Adam happens to us, now that we're in Christ, all that happens to Christ happens to those who are in Christ. Does that make sense? Representatives of humanity. That's the gospel. We need a new representative. Christ comes through the cross. He makes it possible that by grace through faith in Him, we can be saved so that we, just as Christ rose, will also rise from the grave. And if we go back to verse 20, we're told Jesus is the first fruits of everyone who has fallen asleep. Now remember, the words fallen asleep refers to believers. The first fruits is like a pledge of what the rest of the harvest is like. So if the first fruit, if you're, if you're a farmer and you go out and the first fruits that begin to spring up, if they're small and they're shrivelly, guess what that means for the rest of your crop? They're going to be small and shrivelly. If you come and they're large and they're plump, then the rest of the crop as it comes will be large and plump. The first fruits represents the rest of the crop. And so Christ says, I am the first fruit. He comes rising from the grave so that we who are in him will also rise from the grave as well. Romans 8.11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies from the, uh, mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So here's the point. Just as death could not hold on to Christ because we are in Christ by faith, death will not hold on to us either. So here's the question. If we're to, a- if we're to answer the question, who will, be, who, will be, uh, who will experience the resurrection, the question is, am I in Christ or am I in Adam? That's the question that we need to ask. Because it's those who are in Christ will experience the resurrection of Um, of the dead now to be fair everyone rises from the grave everyone will rise everyone has everlasting life in a sense but paul's point here is he's speaking of believers the result that believers will have when they will be resurrected but what we know also in God's word is that there is a day coming. We saw when we were going through Revelation, when we get to Revelation 20, the dead will be raised also, and all will appear before Christ, and all those who are in Adam, meaning those who have rejected Christ, will then not be annihilated in the sense that they will no longer exist, but they will go into experience eternal judgment in what is considered the lake of fire. That's, that's hell. That's what the Bible teaches. So everyone is raised. Now Paul's point here, he's talking about what happens to Christians as they're raised. So he's not focusing on unbelievers. There's other parts of scriptures that do that. But to be clear, when we're walking through the creed and it says to everlasting life, in Christ we go to everlasting life with God and experience his blessing and his presence and his joy. Those who have not trusted in Christ, those who are still in Adam, will be raised but they will then go into the lake of fire, into the judgment of God. Now this happens because when Christ comes, he comes to not just establish a new humanity, but he's establishing a new kingdom. In verses 24 through 25, we read this. 
Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God. So Christ, when he returns, he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now, the word until doesn't mean when everything is under Jesus' feet, no longer is he king. He's still king, it's just he reigns until everything is brought under his feet. The word until is not meaning an end has come. It's just now a new epoch is happening where now he will reign with his people in all of eternity. Jesus came to destroy every rule and every power and every authority on earth. Now surely those words refer to Satan and would refer to spiritual forces. But it would also refer to worldly kingdoms, and it would refer to every single person who is in Adam. Jesus has come to bring about a new humanity and a new kingdom. The humanity will live in the new kingdom, experiencing the blessing and joy of God. All those who are in Adam, who have rejected Christ, will not be a part of this kingdom. Thus, their kingdom will be judged and destroyed, and eventually thrown into the lake of fire. And we're told in verse 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Death comes as a consequence of sin. So what we're learning here is that when Christ comes, for those who are in Christ, there is a day coming when death will die. When Christ returns, we who are in Christ, we will never experience death. We will never be haunted by death. For death will be killed and we who are in Christ will have life everlasting. So, the first question, um, i got to bring my notes up because I almost forgot the wording of it. Uh, how do we know we'll experience the bodily resurrection? Because Christ has raised. Who will experience that resurrection? Those who are in Christ. Christ comes to establish a new humanity. Where does this new humanity live? In the new kingdom, ultimately in the new heavens and earth where God, when Christ returns. So what do our new resurrected bodies look like? Because that's, that's kind of what I want to know, don't you? Like, isn't that the question? So, are we all going to be like 25 when we're in heaven? Like, 25 was a good year. Like, right, 29, I hurt the shoulder. 39, we had some other problems. Uh, four, you know, it's just, it just starts going downhill. So, I think, I think, I think 25 was good. What are we going to look like, though? Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that at all. If we want an actual description, you're not going to find it. But we get something so much better. Okay, so he's going to say what we're going to look like. It's not going to tell us physically what we're going to look like, but it's a good thing because the answer he gives us is so much better than that. So we're going to jump to verse 35. Here we read the questions. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So it seems like the Corinthians... They're struggling with, we don't think that we're actually going to rise from the grave because, and as we go through the passage, um, we're earthly bodies. How do we of earthly bodies get to live with a heavenly God? Like, that doesn't make sense. And so Paul's going to explain this. Um, And Paul answers their question by giving an agricultural example and then he's also going to talk about the glory of heavenly bodies and he's going to talk about the glory of earthly bodies now this is a part like i i went through a lot of this this week it is amazing like 
I can't wait for us to one day actually preach through all of Corinthians, and we can spend a lot more time here. We're not going to be able to cover all that Paul says. What we're going to do right now is just cover the agricultural example that he brings. So in verses 36 to 37, he says, You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but it's a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. So in verse 36, Paul's point is that the seed, um, is that the seed does not grow until it's buried. He says, what you sow does not come to life until it dies, until it's buried. All right, So it has to go into the ground in order for the new thing to come out. Same thing for us. In order, one day, the resurrection, our bodies will go into the ground. And then he goes on, verse 37, his point is that what is placed in the ground is not what comes out of the ground. You bury, um, you bury this kernel of grain or wheat, but you don't see a kernel come out, right? You see the wheat. Uh, so he's not saying if you bury like an apple seed, a peach tree is going to grow. Like that's not what he's saying. What you bury, something totally different comes out. But if you bury an apple seed, you're not going to see apple seeds come out, but eventually you're going to see this tree coming out. So here's the point. Between our earthly bodies and resurrected bodies, there's both continuity and discontinuity. Meaning, what goes in the ground, there's going to be something similar. All right? There's a continuity between it, but there's a discontinuity because what comes out is very different than what went into the grave. Now, again, the details of this, we're not given. But what we know is that we have physical bodies now. And thus, in the resurrection, we will also have physical bodies. Remember, Christ comes. He dies on the cross. He's risen from the grave. And he has a new resurrected body. And we're told in this passage that this resurrected body is going to be greater and more glorious But how much greater? How much more glorious? Look at verses 42 through 44. Here it is. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So here are bodies right now, our earthly bodies, so your body, my body, don't, prepare, don't be prepared to be flattered at this moment. You are described, we, I'll say we, not just you, but we, as perishable, dishonorable, weak, and natural. That's us. Our earthly bodies are subject to pain, disease, breaking, and death. The Bible never says that our earthly bodies will be free from pain and suffering. But notice how the new resurrected bodies are described. Imperishable, raised in glory, raised in power, spiritual. Spiritual means animated by the Spirit. The life that is in us is the very Spirit of God. So hear this. What goes into the grave, our weak, perishable bodies, is not what comes out. But rather bodies that will never perish. Bodies that will never weaken. Bodies that will never need organ transplants or knee replacements or hearing aids, or eyeglasses. They will never suffer diseases like cancer, Parkinson's, or MS. Our new resurrected bodies are glorious in every way and given life by the very Spirit of God. Isn't that good news? Like That's what we're coming into. Now, a false teaching that exists today 
and exists in many, uh, I will say, so-called churches, is that we should experience the benefits of the resurrected body now. If you have enough faith, you can experience the resurrected body now. That's what a false teaching is. It's the prosperity gospel that is out there, but that is false. Paul clearly teaches what's here on earth. Our bodies are weak and imperishable. It's this that goes into the grave, but it's not this that comes out. In fact, look at what comes out. Verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we're all in the image of Adam, okay, man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man in heaven. So here on earth, our bodies are like Adam. They're weak. But you know what? Our bodies will look like in heaven. They look like Christ. So this is why it's better than giving a, you'll be 25 years old. Which maybe. But maybe you don't like your 25-year-oldness. What we're going to look like in heaven will we be glorified and we'll look like Christ. We'll be perfectly made in the image of Christ. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared. So what we're going to be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, so what we will be is Christ when He appears. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Now this in no way means that we become God. That's never what the Bible teaches. But we will become like Him in the sense that we will share in His glory. Our bodies will be like that of Christ. They'll be raised in power. They'll be imperishable. Never will they weaken Never will we experience the effects of sin again. Like, just let that sink in now. Like, did it hurt when you got out of bed today? Like, I went, I, I went, I worked out on, what was it, Thursday? I worked out Thursday. I went for a run. Running is stupid. Like, I never run, but my wife has been running, and like, I was like, oh, I gotta like step it up, otherwise you know, she'll run more than me and faster than me and all that. And I was like, well, this is competition. So I'll go run. What bad thing could happen? Four-tenths of a mile in, I stop running. Because, like, I pull something, like, in my leg, and it's like I'm not, I limp the the other six-tenths of the mile back to my house. Uh, My dog was like, can we we go now? People are, are, like, driving past. And, you know, anyways, weak, perishable bodies. That's who we are now. What gets raised is not humanity 2.0. We're not just an improvement of what we are. We are something so much greater. We are raised in the very image of God. We will share in His glory. We will sit on His throne. We will rule with Him. We will be made like Him. We will see Him. His joy will be what we experience in fullness at all times. That's what happens if we are in Christ. We are destined for glory, not the grave. We will not see decay, but we will be in the presence of Christ. So here's the question. When does that happen? That's the next one. When will we receive these new resurrected bodies? Verse 23, we'll receive these bodies when Jesus returns. That's what we see there. So when does he return? Well, if you're with us in Revelation, we unpacked a lot of that. Uh, And here in 1 Corinthians, we're given something also. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 52. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We should not all sleep, meaning 
There will be some people that don't actually die because Christ will return and they will be alive. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. So we read in Revelation about these seven trumpet blasts. And on the seventh trumpet blast, Christ returns. In fact, I think, Ben, you preached that one too. And you preached like all these sermons as we talked about them today. Um, I think you did. Did you do the seventh trumpet blast? I don't know. It's on the internet. Uh, it's on the last trumpet blast that Jesus returns, that he destroys death, and that all that is in Adam, all that opposes the rule of God, will be destroyed, but all who in Christ will be transformed, resurrected, and brought into the eternal presence of God forever. Just like we don't get the, all the details of what our bodies will look like, we don't have all the details of when Christ will return, but we know that he will return, he'll be at the last trumpet, and when that happens, we will be made like Christ. This is why Christ died. He died so not only would we never, uh, so that we would never suffer under sin again, but that we would dwell forever with him in his perfect kingdom, sharing in the perfect rule and reign of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So that's 1 Corinthians 15. That's what Paul is talking about. We are going to experience the resurrection. It is more beautiful and more glorious than we could ever imagine. Why is that so important for us to know now? So that's the last question. What is the present application of the future bodily resurrection that we know we're going to experience? 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, you get the word therefore? Based upon everything I have just said about the fact that you're going to be, resur- that you're going to be resurrected, that Jesus rose, therefore if you're in Christ, you will raise, you'll be made like him, you will uh, share in his very glory. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So Paul is taking everything that he's just said, and he's like, I have three things for you to know now. Based upon the fact that you will rise from the grave, number one, be steadfast and immovable. Meaning, be firm in your faith. Paul begins the chapter in verse Uh, in chapter uh, 15, verse 2, and he calls the Corinthians, hold fast to the gospel, cling to it. And now he says, don't let anything move you. They had false teachers back then, we have false teachers today. Don't compromise. Remember, the the world will always try to bring the church into alignment with the world or with Adam. But we must remember, we are in Christ. We are under a new humanity. We are part of a new kingdom. Also, we know that there is great physical persecution. We see that all throughout uh, scriptures. Uh, we saw that. We've talked about it a lot in India. At our meeting today, we're going to talk about more about what's happening in, in India. Often, because of physical persecution, there might be the tendency to back away from the faith, to, to shudder, to begin to compromise. So back in verse 32, Paul writes, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beast at Ephesus? If there is no resurrection, then we should not risk our lives for the gospel. Now, we're not told exactly what happened in Ephesus here. We know he didn't actually get thrown to wild beasts because he would have been killed at that moment. So this is surely symbolic of talking about either physical persecution that he did endure or just the persecution that was taking place um, 
as the church was being transformed and growing there, as the world was pressing in against it. We know in 2 Corinthians 11, it talks about how Paul has been beaten, shipwrecked, how he's been whipped. And Paul says, look, if there's no resurrection, then it doesn't, why would we ever risk our lives for the gospel? We should be hedonists, meaning we should just simply satisfy every desire that we have. We should seek uh, Just eat, drink, and be merry. Do what you want because everything happens in this world. After this world, there's nothing. If that's true, there's no point to risk your life for the resurrection or for the gospel. There's no point. But if there's a resurrection, then Paul says there's great gain. In fact, it's because of the resurrection we can actually risk our lives here on earth. It's because we know the grave is not the end game, but that but that we will be raised again in glory. That's why we can go to places like India, why we have people right now in Lebanon, why people go to Korea, while people, or North Korea, while people go into China, into certain areas where it's very hostile. And why would certain pastors and missionaries choose to live in those areas? Because they know that here in this world, their best life is not here. They know that this life is temporary. They know that everything in this world one day will come to perish, and therefore they're living for something much greater than what's offered in this world. They're, offered, they're living for that which takes place in the next to lay down their lives for Christ. You see, the doctrine of the resurrection spurs us on towards missions. It says we can risk our lives. We can risk our lives even at the cost of death because if we die to live as Christ, die is gain. Why is death gain if there's no resurrection? There's only gain if there's the resurrection where we'll be raised with Christ in all glory. Because of the resurrection, we know that our best life is not now. We know it's one to come. It's not decay that waits us, but it's glory that waits us. This is why we can be bold. This is why we can send missionaries, why we can support missionaries in other parts of the world where it's very hostile to the gospel. Because we know that the, that the death, the death that's experienced here is not the end of the story. But rather, we're raised for glory. Paul also says, always abound in the works of the Lord. So what is the work of the Lord? Well, surely Paul has in mind passages like 1 Corinthians 13. If you remember, Paul earlier in the, in, the, in the book, he says, look, you guys are doing everything, but you don't have love for one another, so everything you do is worthless. Everything you do is worthless. If it's not going to be love, what you do has no value. But we're not supposed to love like Adam. We're supposed to love like Christ, meaning we willingly serve and obligate ourselves to others meaning we come to be part of the church, to serve the church, to meet the needs of the church financially and also just with our care and with our time. We love our neighbors. We practice hospitality. Hospitality, according to Scripture, is bringing unbelievers into your house, not necessarily believers. Now, it's great to bring Christians into your house. It's great. But when it says be hospitable, it means bring unbelievers into your house. It means that we are with our time and our finances to come alongside those in the world to support and to encourage. Now you might say, but if I do all this, that's going to impact my budget. That's going to impact the things I want to do. Yeah. Yeah, it will. 
it means you won't be able to dress up your weak and perishable body as much as you want. Let's think, like, let's think biblically along these lines. When we're, when we're living in Adam, what do we do? We say, okay, well, we need the cars, we need the houses, the 401k, the, um, all the things that we want because we're making most of this life here. But if we realize that this body is perishing and it's not going to last and everything in this world will one day come to an end, where do we put our greatest investment? That which is in Christ, that which will last forever. And so just as Christ came to die, so we also take up our crosses that we would love as he had loved and that we would offer our lives as he has lived, as, as he offered his. Why? So that we would be a picture of Christ to this world. When we're more interested in Christ and his glory, we will then treat our bodies and our things in this world rightly. It's when we don't think of heaven and when we don't understand the resurrection that we begin to think that everything in this life matters. Now, in no way am I saying it is wrong to work out, it is wrong to do those things, it is wrong to buy things, it is wrong to have things in this world. But we can operate in such a way that those are the things that give us our hope. Those are the things that are our treasure. Those are our things that bring us our satisfaction. Versus those should be the things, the very vehicle in which we love others. The way we, we shepherd our families. The way that we seek to, obedient, to be obedient to God in scriptures. In the scripture. Lastly, Paul says, know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Some people say, but is it wise... Should, should we really go to unreached areas? Is it wise for the family with small kids to go to a hostile area? Is that wise? Couldn't, it, couldn't there be a better investment somewhere else? Or maybe perhaps you say, all right, look, if we're supposed to be serving people and loving people like Christ, that means that probably a lot of times we're going to get taken advantage of. We probably won't be loved back as much as we want. We probably won't be served as we desire to be served. And Paul's point is, yeah, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Oh, there is a reward coming. And the reward is that one day we will be brought into the very kingdom of God. We will be raised in glory and in power. We will sit on the throne of God. We will share all that Christ has. We will see him for we will be made like him. And at that moment, as we love others, we will always be perfectly loved back. As we serve others, we will always be perfectly served. But yes, in this world, we often will appear to be foolish. But if you go all the way back to the beginning of 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says, the things of this world, or the cross is foolish to the things according to this world. And Paul, and God will, and Paul says, that God says, that God often uses that which is foolish to bring him glory, not the things that are wise according to the world. And so the resurrection, what it does is we understand this doctrine. It frees us from thinking on how we need to satisfy every lust and every desire that we have now. It orients us to remembering our greatest treasure in heaven where Christ is. Our lives now are to be those living sacrifices that testify of our love for God and what he has done for us. So that means the way we buy things, the way that we spend our money, the way that we serve others, the way that we think of missions, all of that thing all of those things will be affected and impacted by our understanding of the resurrection. Where is my treasure? Is it here on earth? 
Or do I understand that because I'm in Christ, my greatest treasure is in heaven, the glory of God. And my responsibility now, through his spirit in me, is to show that glory through his spirit. That's what the resurrection does. That's what Paul wants us to understand here. And so what I love is that in a little bit, we're going to be talking at our church, board, at our church meeting, and we're going to hold up 12 guys. Ten are pastors, and, and two are guys that are in the Andhra Pradesh, uh, the, the state, uh, supporting these people. And what we're going to say is how, uh, what we're going to actually say is we're going to financially support them, and we're going to come alongside them and support them in prayer. And so what we're going to ask for is for you individually to say, I will support that pastor. And we'll talk about all the details of what that's going to look like at the meeting. But what we're going to ask is, Rather than just saying, how do we put more things in this world? How can we collectively put our money together that we would put our treasure, that we would truly operate as though our treasures are in heaven and let us work for the very glory of God, realizing that our greatest treasure is Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us. And so I pray that you'll be able to stay at our meeting. I think it's going to be a fun meeting as we just simply talk, man, this is what the gospel uh, uh, is doing in other parts of the world. This is how we get to be a part of it. This is how we get to live out truth like this today, just uh, with our finances and with our prayer and with our time. Uh, So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite the men to come down, and we will pass out the communion uh, at that point where we will celebrate that Christ has risen, And therefore, we know we will also rise. So let me pray. Our Father.